Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. So this, uh, the whole premise of this series is uh, whether or not you want to agree with it scientifically or not. Uh, there was a physician in the 19th century named George McDougall, and he began to become very interested in the human soul. Um, and we talk about the human soul, our mind, our will, emotions, but he's talking about the immaterial substance that would leave the body and go to the afterlife. And so he started using different uh, people as subjects. And he came to the understanding that one particular subject he had, he measured just a few moments before that person had passed, and then a few moments after they passed, and they lost 21 grams. And so he came to understand, does the soul actually have weight? And so we are using this kind of uh, vernacular to communicate truths that Jesus has told us about the soul. And so all August long, we're going to look at the issue of the soul, the issue of our mind, our will, and emotions. If you came in today and you didn't receive a message card upon your entrance, would you raise your hand right quick and one of the leaders... Um, Jerry, one of our ushers will help you if everyone is served. That was amazing. Just also want to encourage you. You can, uh, you can always access the message online as well uh, through your, your smart device if you want to go to the YouVersion app. But uh, we're excited about what God wants to speak to us today. And I want to, um, I want to jump in and first of all just say thank you for those that are streaming live. I know that that environment uh, continues to grow and people receiving in that way. So thank you for being with us today. And if I hadn't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Pastor Craig, and we do, on behalf of all of our team, we say God bless you and are so excited you're with us today. There was an elder couple, up, elderly couple that were in the 90s, and they were having trouble, and they thought that they were losing their memory, so they go to the doctor, and this, this elderly couple um, talks to the doctor, tells them what's going on, and the doctor says, no, you're okay, you're fine, just write things down. You know, lots of life going on, you live lots of life, so just write things down. You need to make sure you remind yourself and write these things down. Well, later on that night, they go home, and they're watching TV in the bedroom, and the husband gets up out of the bed while they're watching TV, and he says, hey, I'm going into the kitchen, honey. You want something? And she said, yeah, in fact, I do. I want some ice cream. And he said, all right, I'll get you some ice cream. And she said, you need to write that down. Would you write that down? And he said, no, nah, I got it, honey. Seriously, I got it right here. I'm going to get the ice cream right here. And she said, okay, well, not only the ice cream, if you would, I'd like some strawberries on that ice cream. And he said, strawberries, ice cream, got it, right here. And she said, you need to write that down, honey. Write that down. You're going to forget. And she goes on and say, hey, in fact, I don't just want strawberries on my ice cream. If you can give me some nuts sprinkled on my strawberries, and then on top of the nuts, I want some whipped cream. And, and she said, you need to write that down. He said, no, I got it. It's right here. I got it right here. And she said, you're going to forget something. You need to write it down. Well, he disappears. He's gone. 30 minutes later, he comes back into the bedroom. And as he walks into the bedroom, he's carrying a plate of sausage and eggs. Well, he hands the sausage and eggs to her, and she looks up and she says, I knew it. I knew you'd forget. You forgot the toast. (laughs) You know something we're forgetting today? We're forgetting how to be happy. We as a culture are forgetting how to be happy. We're forgetting how to be joy-filled. We're forgetting how to be content. We're forgetting how to to be happy. This was born out of some interesting research. The uh, interesting research in our nation right now is that one out of three people, notice this, one out of three Americans does not consider themselves to be happy. One out of three. That's interesting. The majority of people you see at the grocery store or at your, your place of work, two out of three do not have happiness enough in their heart to check the happiness box on a survey that they're asked to take. I don't know about you, but does that surprise you? Does it surprise you about our Western world? Surprise you about the context we find ourselves? We have forgotten how to find happiness. Now, it used to be that the elderly people in our culture were the ones that were the most happy, but now the new research says the elderly people are among the unhappiest people in America. You know, unhappiness takes its toll on all of us. We think it's no big deal, but it really does. Stats say that unhappy people are harder to live with. Stats say that it takes a toll on your actual physical health. Unhappy people don't sleep as well. Unhappy people are not as productive at work. Unhappy people have shorter careers. Unhappy people die earlier. And unhappy people, believe it or not, earn less money. Now, there's well over 2,000 verses in the Bible that call us to live lives of joy, call us to live lives of peace, call us to live lives of contentment and blessedness. God came to give us joy. 
I, I want to challenge us. Can, can you imagine what would happen if the church of Jesus Christ released a quorum of joy-filled people into the world that we currently live in? Could you imagine what would happen if the church released a quorum of happy people into the culture? You know, the Bible has over 50, probably 53 one another verses in it. One another. In other words, serve one another, encourage one another, admonish one another. In other words, what God is saying is that doing good does good for the giver. That, that, that truly what Jesus said in Acts 20, 32 is right. That he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Oh, Eugene Peterson takes the paraphrase and he says, you're far happier giving than you are getting. And I want to share with us today about some of the reasons why we are unable to be happy. Some of the reasons why we have, it seems as, as if we are in a delay in God's purpose for our life. Because the reality is, every person in this room has or is experiencing some delay somewhere in your life right now. That delay could be in your marriage. That delay could be in your finances. That de delay could be in your calling. That delay could be in your business. But for some reason, things aren't moving the way you think they should move. They're not progressing the way you want them to progress. And here's what I've learned about delays. Are you ready, church? What I've learned about delays is this. Is that the pause is often not without cause. That the pause God puts us in is often not without Cause. What happens is the Lord and His loving kindness always reaches in. He ultimately puts a pause on our life in order to teach us something. In order to lead us into some truth. And it's important to realize that. Listen, if you're in this room today and you're frustrated. And you're in this room today and you're in a delay. Don't remain frustrated. But put all the energy that normally goes for frustration. And put it into discovering what God is actually doing in your life. Or why the delay might be happening. Now listen, I could spend months talking about the reasons, different reasons of why delay happens. We could talk about extensively about different reasons. But today I want to talk about one that I guarantee you've probably never thought about as it relates to the delay in your life. Could it be the reason that you are delayed is because God wants to treat untreated pain in your life? That God wants to treat untreated pain. I'm entitling this message, Soul Pain. Soul Pain. Could it be that we are delayed because God wants to deal with the untreated pain in our soul? And I want to do it today by exploring the life, the incredible life of a lady in the Old Testament named Hannah. Now, Hannah never wrote a Bible book. Hannah never led a group of people into battle for Israel. She actually never even prophesied. But what her life does is her life unpacks for us how you can live free... From untreated pain. How you can live free from soul pain. So I want us to pray as we outset here. But here's the thing. I don't need you to pray for me. I'm prayed up. I need you to pray for you. Because here's what I've learned about the Holy Spirit. You see your life one way. But the Holy Spirit sees your life the accurate way. He doesn't see what you see. What you often see or don't want to admit is even seen. He sees you that accurate way. He sees the parts of you and depths of you. You didn't know we're there. And sometimes you don't even want to admit are there. So I want you to pray for you. And here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and enlighten the eyes of my heart to let me see me the way you see me because you want to speak to me today. Can you pray? I want you to pray for you. I will pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray, God, right now for each life in this room, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word. Jesus, you said my words are life. They're eternal. I thank you that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts between soul and spirit. It divides joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And your word is living today. And I pray for each person. God, they would see with clarity how you see them. That, Lord, they would be liberated and find freedom, true freedom in you today. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody sip. Amen. Now, there's a saying that I've found to be true. I don't know if you heard this saying before. I'm sure you have. It is. Have you ever heard this before? Ignorance is bliss. Anybody heard this before? Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. And what's that mean? It means that sometimes it's just better not to know things. Right? For instance, it is true in life. Had we known some of the things that that are ahead of us, we might not have ever started out on the journey. We might have never left the tent. We might have never got out of the front door. For example, had I known how much Meredith and I would fight over the location 
of clothes that I've already worn but plan to wear again. Okay, So the jeans that I've worn, but I'm not going to the dirty clothes because I'm going to wear them again tomorrow. I'm going to put them on tomorrow. If I would have known all right, where the location should be at for these clothes that have been worn but need to be worn again, I'm not sure I would have ever proposed in 2006, right? I mean, this happens with our kids, right? I mean, if I would have known how much poop a 10-pound baby produces in a day, I'm not sure I would have ever been a father, especially a father of three. Happens in ministry, right? Had I known, Lord have mercy had I known, right? Had I known in ministry how crazy, crazy church folk are. Now, I'm not talking about you, right? I'm talking about other church folk. But, but how crazy church folk are, I'm not sure I would have ever answered the call to pastoral ministry, right? And in life, had I known how much pain would be a part of my journey, I'd have probably locked myself in and I'd never taken the first step. Because here is the undeniable fact about life. Life hurts. It hurts. It hurts badly. Life is painful. Life is challenging. Life hurts. Now, I'm not talking about sometimes you stub your toe and that hurts. And sometimes there are times where you need icy hot in the house. But I'm actually referring to a deeper pain. One that lingers a little longer, it's an inner pain. An inner pain that finds its way on the inside. See, the reality is, is Hannah, who we're about to read about, she found that pain at home. Now, your pain not, might not be at home. Maybe your pain's in a different place. But Hannah was married, and she was married to a man that by, she loved. But per the custom of the day, he had another wife. That wife was Penaniah. Penaniah could have tons of kids. Hannah couldn't have any kids. And Penaniah would ridicule her and provoke her day after day, year after year, that she could not have kids for her husband. Now, before I, before I read this passage, let me make something really, really clear. Often, as a, as in terms of apologetics, you're asked, what do you make of the polygamy in the Old Testament? So sometimes I'm asked, what do you make of polygamy? You know, David had hundreds of wives, Solomon had hundreds of wives, hundreds of concubines. Was it God's plan? Well, no, in light of the New Testament, we see that God's plan for marriage via Adam and Eve was a monogamous one male-female relationship. We see that in Scripture. But there's some interesting chapters, very interesting chapters of the book of Genesis that begin to kind of delineate a little bit of this practice of polygamy. Let's read it in Genesis 4. The Bible says that Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Here's what's amazing. After Cain kills Abel, they have another son. His name is Seth. Now from Seth comes a whole righteous lineage. Amazing lineage. Comes from uh, Seth Methuselah, 969 years old. Also Enoch. Enoch walked with God and was not more. But you know what? Cain, when he killed Abel, his lineage was not like Seth's. You know what Cain did? He began to have one rascal after another. Go read the lineage. And here is one of his sons. One of his son's name is Lamech. And you know what Lamech was known for in Scripture? He had two things he was known for. He got up and he, he, he gave this ghastly, horrible, vicious song. Read it in Genesis 4. And he was known to be the first person who ever married two wives. Now in that text it doesn't say God said no to wives. But what it does do is it mentions that in the context of all of the wickedness of Israel. So you say, Craig, how did God deal? Well, God did not beat his Old Testament saints down for that. He dealt with this sin through what we call forbearance. And he took all of that sin and he placed it on Jesus and established a new covenant. So let's get it clear that God does not practice nor he's, he endorses polygamy whatsoever. Okay, And that's a way, uh, uh, just a way to help you kind of understand. Now, here's what's interesting. Is that, that, that Hannah here being ridiculed daily from Penaniah because she can't have kids. Let's begin to read of what takes place. 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 1 through 7. Notice what the Bible says. There was a certain man from Mamatha, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. Now, he had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other was Penaniah. Now, Penaniah had children, but Hannah could have none. She was, she was infertile. And year after year, this man went up from his town to worship, and he was going to sacrifice the Lord at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Now, they have their own issue. Remember what happened with Phinehas. He would give portions of the meat to the wife, Penaniah, and to all the sons and daughters. Bonus this. But to Hannah, this is... This is the husband. He gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Notice next verse. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, Penaniah, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Now watch this. This went on year after year, and whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, 
Her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. This is pain. This is inner pain. This is Hannah's pain that happens at home. So she's dealing with the difficulty of infertility and Penanias consistently ridiculing Hannah. Now that's Hannah's pain. But that not, might, might not be your pain. But you do have pain. Now your pain might be that you were rejected by your parents. Your pain might be that you were abused by a boss. Your pain might be that you're, you've lost someone prematurely in a time that you didn't think they should be lost. It may be your pain is a disappointment. Maybe your pain is the effects of your addiction. Or maybe your pain is the effects of the addiction of the people around you. But we all have pain. And the reality is this. We all have pain. Now the details of that pain are different. But the pain is the same. And the question I want to ask you as we kick off this message today is this. What have you done with your pain? What have you done with your pain? I ask that because in our house, Mossgrove house, we know what to do with physical pain. We call them boo-boos. Okay? We know what to do with boo-boos. We call them boo-boos. When you're in our house and you get a boo-boo, you wash it out, you put a little antiseptic on it, and then you choose between a yellow emoji band-aid or a green emoji band-aid, right? But if you're anything like me, chances are you never got a class or you never got a certification on what to do if the pain is not on the outside, but what if the pain is on the inside. What to do with the boo-boos on the inside? You didn't go to a class to learn what to do with it. You didn't get a certification to learn how to deal with it. And chances are you were probably never taught how to deal with your inner pain. So what happens is we pretend like it didn't happen. We act like it's not there. Or we push it to the back of our brain and mind thinking that if we push it back far enough in our brain and forget it, it won't be there. But listen to me, church. The problem with that is this. All of our efforts to deal with our inner pain ignore the most misunderstood fact about pain. And that is this, pain does not dissipate, pain accumulates. Pain doesn't drain out, pain doesn't evaporate, pain accumulates. In other words, your heart is like a container, that container over time, hurt after hurt, line after line, cut after cut, pain after pain. It's never one person that does it to you. It's pain after pain, it's challenge after challenge. The water level of pain in your heart starts to rise and it doesn't drain out and it doesn't evaporate and it continues to grow and it continues to accumulate. That's the reason the harshest words that were said to you in your childhood are still painful today in your adulthood. That's the reason why the rejection you faced at your last church is still in your mind at this church. That's why the difficulty you face in the past season because of wrong words that built insecurity is the insecurity you're still having to deal with in the present. Even though that's the reason that even though you've forgiven somebody and released them and what they did to you, it's still painful when you think about what they did. Now, there are some memories that we, we would choose not to hang on to, but they hang on to us. And we become captive to those memories. And somehow, some way, little by little, cut by cut, moment by moment, pain by pain, pain builds in our hearts until we can no longer ignore that it is there. And when we can no longer ignore that it is there, we stop controlling our pain and our pain controls us. We're now submitted to it. The ebb and flow of the emotions that are attached to that pain will come and go. They'll come in the least likely of moments. And when the pain starts controlling us, we are finally, as believers, forced to to, to deal with the pain. Forced to confront the pain. See, pain that is not transformed will be pain that is transferred. It will be transferred to another individual. It will be transferred onto another individual. So what I want to do is I want to talk about the three unhealthy ways we treat untreated pain. And the way I want to do that is by looking at the three famous kings of Israel. And the Lord gave me this several weeks ago, and I, I think it would be a great template for us to understand how we treat untreated pain. The first one's King David. Now, King David's the most famous of all kings, right? He was, he was known for his victories. He defeated Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. He deleted all the Philistines. But there was one opponent that he never defeated in his whole life. David never defeated the opponent of the pain of rejection. He never could defeat it. You say, how? If you study his life and you just get beyond the wars and you study the background of his life, you'll realize he was never affirmed by a single male his whole life. It started with his dad. 
His dad Jesse had eight sons, and Samuel the prophet came to the house one day ready to anoint the next king of Israel. And Jesse didn't even bring the the eighth son in. He kept the seven sons in front of the prophet because he didn't even deem David worthy enough to be able to take over a kingdom. He was rejected from his father. He was considered not even important enough to be asked. Well, then the next... Uh, he thought, well, I, I'm going to look up to my brothers. Every young man looks up to a brother. So he looks up to his brothers, and he always looks up, and he goes to the battlefield one day for the next chapter, and the Bible says he runs cheese and bread to the front lines of the battle, the Valley of Elah, and he gets there, and he hears this giant from Gath named the Philistine, this giant named Goliath, and he's defying God and defying the armies of Israel. And he says to his brothers, what, is somebody going to do anything about it? Is there not a cause, he says in 1 Samuel? And his brothers, the Bible says, they publicly shame him. They bring him in front of all the armies of Israel and they embarrass this shepherd boy in front of all the armies. So he leaves dad, he leaves brothers. He thinks, okay, one day I can find a man to look up to. So I'm going to start this internship. I'm going to start an internship under a man named Saul, the king of Israel. And instead of experiencing a father figure... He finds 14 years of rejection and 14 years of running for his life and 14 years of even personal threats against his life. So little by little, the pain accumulates. Accumulates. He has to do something with the pain. And he, David, is a picture of when we choose to medicate our pain. David's a medicator. He medicates his pain. Now, we medicate our pain with a lot of different ways. We medicate it with food. We medicate it with shopping. We medicate it with bank accounts. We medicate it with social media. We medicate it in different ways. Some people medicate it with drugs or medicate it with alcohol. But notice, David medicated his pain with sex. David medicated with sex. David had eight wives and ten concubines. Now, here's what's so amazing about David. That not being enough, he then had to go kill another man and take his wife and medicate with her. He had to sleep with her. I think there is one verse in the Old Testament that clearly delineates David's medication. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 12 through 13. Now, this should be the highlight of David's life. David knew wars are over. No more wars in Israel. He's now established as the king. He'd been running for his life for 25 years. He's now the king. This is the high moment of his life. He, the Lord, had established him as king of Israel. He had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. But after he left Hebron, he took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him. David must medicate even though he is now established. In other words, what he's doing is he's leaving God's blessing to go medicate the pain in his heart because here's the reality. You ready, church? Eventually what you medicate with is what you eventually become addicted to. So whatever you medicate with leads to what you are addicted to. Now, some of us aren't Davids. Some of us don't medicate our pain. We're the second king. We allow our pain to motivate us. So we have medicators and motivators. King Solomon, the son of David. King Solomon, interesting story. He didn't medicate his pain. He motivated and was motivated by his pain. His pain became the unending source of ambition and need for accomplishment. Now listen, Solomon also faced, uh, faced uh, rejection, though differently than his dad. And the reason he did is because when he was born, he was born, and he was not a picture of a future king. He was a picture of his dad's affair. So when he was born into the world, he was not received as such as who he was created to be. No, he was born of David's affair, so he was labeled a sinful mistake, not a king. So no one considered him to be a great king. He represented David's sin. He was rejected from what he meant to be when he was about to become king. In fact, the Bible tells us there was a political upheaval in the nation and he almost didn't become king and get the whole kingdom. Why? Because the Bible says he was not a clear heir to the throne. And it was crazy. So little by little, not one person, but little by little, pain by pain, it accumulates. And one day, here's what Solomon says. He says, I'll prove everybody wrong. So he wasn't a medicator, he was a motivator. He said, I'll prove everybody wrong. And he turns his pain into a motivator. Let's see how it turns out for him. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I got one house. I got another house. I bought more land. Come on, let's put it in modern day vernacular. I made gardens. I made parks. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. The next verse in verse 9, he says, There was no one greater than me in all the earth. The Bible says in Solomon's time that uh, silver was plenteous because he literally owned almost all of the gold in the world. And he gets to verse 9 and says, hey, no one was greater than me. So how did it turn out for you, Solomon? 
How did that work? That motivation help your pain? Let's read it, verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I told to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was a chasing after the wind, for nothing was gained under the sun. Listen to me. Positive motivation can be a key to success, but painful motivation is just a sickness. And a lot of the people that you look at, who you think outwardly are successful, who look like they all got it together on the outside, what really is happening is the outward success is an attempt to fix the inward pain. That's why they need another degree. That's why they need another business. That's why they need to flash their bank accounts. That's why they get on Instagram. And on Instagram, they need to show you how much money they have or what they just purchased. That's why a truck wasn't enough. They bought a truck and the truck wasn't enough, so they had to buy a boat. And the boat wasn't enough. They had to buy a jet ski and the jet ski wasn't enough, so they had to buy a new wife. And they had to get a new... And and this continually, continually happens because deep down inside, the pain is so great that it's a motivation that propels them forward. But maybe you're not a medicator or a motivator. But the third type of unhealthy way we deal with untreated pain is like King Absalom who was a meditator. A meditator. So maybe you don't medicate your pain. Maybe you're not using your pain to motivate. But what about meditate? Absalom was a meditator. The final way people deal with pain is they just let it become all-consuming obsession in their minds and hearts. It's some things they can't move past. They're talking about 20 years from now. They're talking about something that happened 20 years ago. And this happened in Absalom's life. In 2 Samuel 13, the Bible says a, a horrific moment in Israel's history. David had a son. Of course, you know that David's son was Absalom. And David had a daughter. David's daughter was named Tamar. And the Bible says that Absalom's sister, Tamar, was brutally raped. Brutally raped. And if you go read the text, the Bible says that, that hatred filled Absalom's heart. It filled his heart. And here's what the next verse says. He said or did nothing about it for two years. So the pain was inflicted on his heart. And he grows quiet for two full years. Doesn't say a thing about it. He bottled up all the pain and hurt. But here's the problem, folks. When you bottle up all that pain, it's going to eventually burst forth. And later in his life, guess what? Absalom commits murder. He commits treason to Israel. And then he ends up actually, catch this, actually raping someone else. You know why he raped somebody else? Because when you keep hate in your heart, you always eventually become what you hate. That's why when you look at young people and they hate that their dad did this, but they don't forgive their dad, they become like their dad. And that's why young ladies who hate what has happened to their situation, if they're unwilling to forgive what's happened in their situation, they become what they hate. Folks, this is what's wrong with our nation, folks. I mean, I'm not trying to be political, but why were 40 people murdered last night? What, 20 people in, in Texas and another 19 people in Detroit or, or in Dayton last night? It's just, yeah, you can do all kinds of gun control, but every single one of these things happens from white males who are under 30 years old who have psychological issues of rejection or pain or challenge or whatever it is that's going on. So we can bury our heads in the sand or we can realize that, listen, untreated pain will ultimately destroy your adulthood. It will destroy you. It messes with you. It it ultimately cuts your strength out from under. Your ability to... You can't bottle up all that hurt and not come forth in epic proportion. Because listen, I've learned something in ministry. People who are hurting on the inside eventually always have to hurt somebody on the outside. So when they're hurting you, you've got to be healthy enough to realize it's not an attack against me. It's a projection of their inner world on me. Now, that takes maturity in ministry to realize that what they're feeling about you has nothing to do with you, has everything to do with them. See, hurt people hurt people. Damaged people damage people. Wounded people wound people. And all this pain, this is what blew my mind, y'all. All this pain damaged Absalom's life. It damaged David's life. And it, it ultimately took the kingdom from Solomon, this untreated pain, this motivator. And here's what blew my mind. The Bible says David was the most spiritual. He was a man after God's own heart. The Bible says Solomon was the wisest man on the planet. No one's ever been as wise like him. And the Bible says Absalom was the greatest looking man on all the planet. No one had looks like him. You want to know how powerful, Craig, is untreated pain? It doesn't matter how strong your strengths are. It can cripple you if you let it go untreated in your life. It doesn't matter how strong your strengths are. 
if they're left untreated, it, it can cripple your life. And the reason that's true, you ready? The reason that is true is because accumulated pain attracts the enemy. Let me say it this way. A pain-filled heart is a playing field for Satan. You know why a pain-filled heart is a playing field for Satan? Because the enemy loves to come into a pain-filled heart because a pain-filled heart is full of darkness and a pain-filled heart is full of confusion. And so what Satan does is he comes into those who have pain-filled hearts and he begins to speak to those hearts. Now listen, let me, let me expose his tactics. He doesn't come in and announce to you that he's coming into your heart. What he does is he pretends to be your own thoughts. So what he does is he begins to blast you. He will land blast you with accusations. Normally, if you're going into a painful season, he'll say, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? Are you hearing those in your mouth? What if, what if? But really what God wants you to say is even if, even if it happens, God will be faithful. Even if it happened once, I got through it the last. See, see, what he does, he begins to land blast you. And he will give implications and he will give accusations to you until eventually his voice becomes your thoughts. See, that's how he wins. He gets his voice to become your thoughts. You take his words as your own thoughts and it starts to be like this. You will never be healthy, Pastor Craig. You will never get past this, Pastor Craig. And it happens long enough until you start thinking, I'll never be healthy, Pastor Craig. I'll never get past this. I'll never change. This will always be the way and eventually what happens is I take his words as my own thoughts you Craig what is Satan doing let me tell you what Satan's doing he's trying to get you to a place where he comes and takes you by the hand and he wants to take you in your pain down the path to where you will take what I'm calling an inner vow so you have pain in your heart Satan grabs you by the hand and he walks you to a path to make an inner vow now what is an inner vow pastor Craig you know what an inner vow is An inner vow is this, a damaging promise that we make ourselves in order to protect ourselves from ever experiencing that pain again. So so we take inner vows. You know what they are. Let me tell you what an inner vow sounds like. I will never let someone treat me like that again. I will never put myself in that position ever again. I will never subjugate myself to a boss like that again. I will never allow someone to have access to me like that person had. And what happens is you take an inner vow to comfort yourself for your inner pain. Here's the problem with inner vows. Are you ready, church? They all start with the words, I will. I will. Which means I become the source of my protection. It means I become the source of my provision. And here's what the enemy's trying to get you to do. He's trying to trick you into taking an inner vow because an inner vow means that you take your life out of God's hands and you put your life back in your hands. And listen to me church, I'm preaching right here. If you are in your own hands, then the enemy has freedom to have a play day with you. He can wear you out. Wear your mind out. Wear your soul out. Your will. Your emotions. And if you're in your own hands, the enemy begins to toy with you. And this is the reason why at some point in your life, the Holy Spirit has to hit pause on your life. And he has to say, you know what? I can't allow you to continue in untreated pain anymore. I've got to hit pause. I've got to hit delay. And we've got to deal with this issue. Let me tell you what happened in my life. Now, this has probably happened that I can think of consciously three times where I've taken inner vows and the Lord had to bring it back up. I've shared one of them with you that I did a few years ago, right before I went into a really, really difficult season, an interview that I took in anger one night speaking to my wife. But this is another one. When I couldn't make progress in my spiritual life, you try to do everything you can. And normally when we're stuck in the spiritual life, we tend to think it's always things outside of us, but normally it's always things within us. So we change our diet, we, you know, we get on CrossFit, we change staffs, we change jobs, and we think it's going to deal with it, but it doesn't really deal with it because it's something inward. And what God did to me is he forced me to come face to face with a root of rejection that I had in my heart. Now listen, guys. We macho men, I want you to hear me very carefully. When we start talking things like this in sermons, people are oh, here we go again. You all, you all just buck up to that person and get over it. Just get over it. Like, to that statement or sentiment, I want to say something. The enemy has been doing this for a long, long time. And he is really, really smart. And he has just figured out, are you ready? If he can wound you in infancy, he'll never have to deal with you in maturity. Why are all the attacks that hurt the most done in your adolescence? Why is the enemy in an all-out assault against the next generation? Because if he knows, he's smart. 
If he can wound you in infancy, he doesn't have to deal with you in maturity. That's the reason so much of his attacks are going after young people and adolescents. That's the reason the harshest words hit the hardest when you're at youngest. That's why there's so much pointed at our kids and our nation today. And I want to tell you, why are we building a building? Why are we believing for more space? Because we want more space to be able to reach more kids, to minister to more families. We want to say, God, we want to be on the front lines of battle to fight for children, to fight for their hearts, the ones that don't have people speaking life over them at home. That they could come once or twice a week and they could get individuals who would, who would have the healing balm of guilt Gilead on their lips to speak life and to speak healing to these young people who have been so damaged, so hurt, so cut, so pain-filled in their hearts. And Satan has just figured out if he can take you out early enough, he'll never have to deal with you later on. He's smart. So listen, man, don't dismiss those hurts like, oh, they were just when I was young. No, those weren't simple hurts. Those were assassination attempts. To try to kill you. So look. 16 years old. That 16 year old took an inner vow. And I said. I'll do whatever it takes to make people happy. So I'll never be rejected again like that. So I'll I'll perform with the best of them. I will succeed with the best of them. Because I'm never going to feel the brunt of that again. Now listen. An inner vow like that doesn't seem really damaging for a. 16-year-old teenager, but what happens when you fast forward and that teenager now pastors hundreds of people? What happens when your root of bitterness as an 11-year-old lasts with you till you're 39 running a business? See, we really spend our whole adulthood just trying to recover from our childhood. <laughs> I mean, it's what we do. To find restoration, sanctification, strength that God wants to renew in areas that have been damaged. And so let me say it this way. How am I supposed to lead people in a church when all I'm worried about is keeping them happy? So it didn't seem big for the 16-year-old to say that. But how am I supposed to say sane in my brain when I have conditioned myself to perform for people? Or let me say it this way. How am I supposed to please God when I've conditioned my heart to please people for 10 years? Let me, let me say it another way. The enemy knows what he's doing. That's why, notice, the vow of a teenager is an attempt to actually destroy a pastor later on in life. And the enemy wants you to take that untreated pain and walk you to an inner vow where you'll say, I'll never do it again. And many of you are here today. That's the reason your business is stuck. That's the reason your marriage is stuck. That's the reason your career has stalled. That's the reason you can't find Mr. Right. That's the reason you can't find Mrs. Right. And you say, Craig, that's discouraging. No, that's actually encouraging. You know why it's encouraging? Because I've learned that the Holy Spirit never highlights a pain unless He intends to heal it. And so if the Holy Spirit of God will lift up that pain, it's because He wants to heal it. He didn't want to shame you. You know what that means? I got good news for you, church. That means today on God's calendar is a day where you can leave church whole and not beat up. That means today on God's calendar, you can get to a place where you get your joy back. That means today on God's calendar you can come down to this altar and God can take your pain. God can, God can wear your pain himself like he wore it to the cross and treat the untreated pain in your soul so that you can live in the freedom that he died to purchase for you. So let me talk about one of those real difficult inner pains. I want to talk about one of the most difficult one another verses. See, it's not hard to do most of the one another verses. Greet one another, that's not hard. Encourage one another, that's not hard. Admonish one another, that's not hard. But what about this one? Forgive one another. Forgive one another. Did you know there's a direct correlation between a person's happiness and their willingness to forgive? Notice what the Apostle Paul would say in the book of Ephesians. Look at this, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 32, he said, Forgive one another as quickly and as thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. Forgive other people as quickly and as thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. Now, that's why I say to you that this is the story of Buster. Now, I won't call my teacher her real name because it wasn't a great experience, but I'll call her Buster. And she busted anyone she didn't like. She was my coach. She was my basketball coach. She busted anyone. You did not want to be in her orbit. Well, one day I got caught up in that orbit. And in my end-of-season basketball, she began to bench the only two seniors left because she had ruined the program, literally. Long story short, she was sleeping with the 
principal at the time to who he was married. And because of that whole situation, she benched us. And finally, I was so mad one night. My parents were so mad. They met her in the hallway at Brainerd High School and just were asking her. And she began to scream and say that, you know, yell for another coach because, you know, this man's about to beat me. My dad would never touch a woman that way. But he was trying to get her to stop to, to listen to what he wanted to say. And long story short, I left that night and I took my fist and I punched the outside huge garbage can, the dumpster outside, but broke my, my knuckles. And a few weeks later, the Holy Spirit pricked me. It was the first time I had to really do this, really, really ask for forgiveness. So I was sitting down uh, in the bottom of my commons one day and she was up there waiting between classes with her uh, elbows on the pole and she was overlooking the commons. And I knew the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And I said, I got to go forgive her. So I go up there and I lean up against the pole and I say, Coach Buster. She wouldn't even acknowledge me. I said, Coach Buster. She wouldn't even turn and look at me. Coach Buster. I said, well, since you're not going to look at me, I've got to tell you, I know you can hear what I'm saying. I just want to say to you, I'm sorry if I did anything wrong to you or said anything wrong about you or offended you in some way or responded inappropriate to you and your leadership and authority on the team. And then I turned and walked away. Now, here's the point. Through the years, Buster, that woman, has become to me to symbolize a person that is the person who is out always in anger and takes their anger out on other people and brings them pain. See, I think everyone in here has a buster. Every one of you have a buster. None of us get through life scot-free. And I also think that my buster is a gadfly or a mosquito compared to your buster. Your buster was your dad who came at you every day. Your buster was that man who said, when you're young and slender, I love you, but when you're older and round, I don't care about you anymore. Your buster is that teacher who flunked you in spite of you. And your buster took much from you. Now listen to me, I want to be very careful when I tread on talking about your buster, because here's what I've learned about people in Christianity. For many people, the hardest thing to do in the Christian faith is to forgive their busters. You'd rather sell your whole house, all your possessions, and go live in an orphanage than you would rather forgive that jerk. Forgiving Buster is about the hardest command that we find in the New Testament. Forgiving the one that hurt us deepest. Forgiving the one that inflicted the most pain. But the Bible says... To forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So what that tells us is the only way we can learn to forgive those busters is if we do what? We look at how Jesus forgave us. So let's leave left out of Ephesians and go back to the last hours of Jesus' life. John's gospel takes us into the upper room. And in the upper room we find a story that has a water pitcher, a basin, and 24 sweaty feet. Notice what the Bible says in John chapter 13, verse 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his garments, and he took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. This is the evening of the betrayal. Jesus knew who he was. He knows his identity. He's going back to the Father. He was from the Father. He's going back. So he stands up. Y'all listen, the whole room is quiet. But when Jesus stands up and ungirds himself, the disciples perk up. What is he doing? And the Bible says he took off his carpenter's robe. Why? Because a carpenter's robe was even too ostentatious for what he was about to do. The Bible says he wrapped himself in a servant's wrap. He wrapped himself and became a servant. He became the lowest servant on the totem pole of Israel. The one who would wash the feet of the people who walked through the mud and the grime of everyday living. And he took a pitcher of water and he began to fill a basin. I'm thinking the only sound heard in the upper room that night was the water. Jesus wasn't talking. The disciples were stunned. And then the next sound was when Jesus took the bowl. And he knelt down in front of the first disciple and the bowl hit the stone floor. And then the next sound was the sound of God's hands untying and unleashing the leather sandals. And Jesus began one disciple after the other. Matthew, Andrew, Nathaniel, John. He began to untie the sandals. 
and lifting up one filthy foot and placing one filthy foot in the basin, a crusty, smelly foot full of grime, and one foot at a time, he placed the foot in the basin of the water and he began to massage that foot. The only sound that could be heard was the hands of God getting into the grime of humans. And then he finished that foot. And he picked it up, placed it back on the sandal. And then in between disciples, he would take that bowl and basin. He would go over to the window or a big bucket. And he would pour that dirty water out. And then he would come back in front of the next disciple. How long did that process take? 12 followers, 24 feet, 3 minutes per foot, the better part of an hour. Jesus has 10 hours to live and he's going to use one hour to do that? He's in his final moments and the Lord is going to use a whole hour to wash the feet of disciples. And what we do is we go looking for that verse in the Bible that says Jesus washed all of their feet except Judas's feet. But it's not in there. He washed Judas's feet. In fact, the only person that left the upper room with dirty feet that night was Jesus. He left. And the disciples, of course, say to him, Hey, we're never going to deny you. And he looked at Peter and he says, You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. And by the next morning, folks, at 9 o'clock, he's hanging on a cross. But before he's hanging on a cross... Every disciple, I don't know if this is true, but I see it in my mind. Every disciple has run into every crook and nanny and crevice of Jerusalem. Some of them went up in the hillside. Some of them went on the Mount of Olives. They went to anywhere they could hide themselves from the foreign authorities and the the, the rulers of the high priest and the Sanhedrin because they didn't want to be associated with Jesus. And I can imagine in my mind, y'all, they're panting. Their lungs are full or depleted. And they sat down in their crevice. They sat on that rock. They sat on the hillside. And they look down and they see clean feet and they realize Jesus they were given mercy before they even knew they needed it he knew that those feet would run and forsake him and he washed them he washed the feet who would betray him forgive one another As thoroughly and completely as God in Christ forgave you. He gave them mercy before they knew they needed mercy. And today he asks us to forgive others as he has forgiven us. So eventually, let's go back to Hannah. Hannah can't handle the pain any longer. She's got to allow God to treat the pain. Well, this is a powerful picture of her prayer. And what I want to do is I want to give you three quick practical points and then I want to let you have moments with the Lord. Let you come forward and surrender whatever pain needs to be surrendered. But, but, but we see a picture of how to treat untreated pain by Hannah's prayer. And here's what happens. 1 Samuel 1 and 10, the Bible says, In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord. So the first thing she did is she said, You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop hiding it and I'm going to take it to the one who can heal it. I'm going to take my pain to the Lord. And she wept bitterly. And the Bible says she made a vow to God. In other words, she says, You've got to go to heal. you got to go to God to heal these things. You can't go to a bottle. You can't go to a pill. And then she says, Remember me and give your servant a son. And if you give him a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And she says, God, you can take this pain, you can redeem this pain for your good and for something good for others if you will take it. So let me give you three practical things Hannah did that you must do with your untreated pain. Number one, you have to be honest that you are hurting. You have to be honest that you're hurting. Hannah was honest she was hurting. The Bible says she went to church year after year after year and she never never admitted the hurt. She went year after year sacrificing in the temple year after year with her husband, getting all kinds of food, but never admitting she was hurt. Finally, she said, I can't live with it anymore. I'm hurting. And listen to me, church, that's so poignant because week after week, people come into church week after week and they're hurting. And they fake it, fake it, fake it, fake it. People are hurting. How you doing? Well, I'm blessed and highly favored, brother. How you doing? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored too. Yet on the inside, you're dying. 
You're dying on the inside. The beginning of Hannah's healing was when she decided to stop faking her hurt. And here's why we fake our hurt in church. The enemy has convinced us as believers. Here's what he's convinced us. Is that if you're really spiritual, you shouldn't get hurt like this. If you're really a person of fervor and a person of God or a man of God or woman of God, you should be immune to this. You shouldn't feel that. You don't deal with this. You're immune to this. But listen, here's what I've learned. Jesus was the most spiritual person that ever walked the face of the planet. And he never hid his hurt one time in all of the Gospels. The Bible says he weeps with Mary and Martha when Lazarus, his friend, had died. The Bible says he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's pouring out blood. He's pouring out sweat when he thinks to his father, when he thinks about his friends that are about to betray him. He's not hanging on the cross, y'all, saying, Woo, I'm doing God's will for all of humanity. I'm securing every soul, past, present, and future. No, he's saying, Father, where in the world are you? I feel forsaken. I feel like you've turned your back on me. Lord, my, I, I feel like my tongue has dried up like a pot's hair. I feel all the pain on my back. You know why? You know why Jesus did that? Because here's the reality. Jesus knew that God could never heal anything that we hide. He can never heal anything that we hide. So healing starts with disclosure. Healing starts with revealing. you got to be honest. Listen, you know what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus is not saying blessed are those who are always sad. No, what he's saying is, listen... He's saying, until you openly mourn, I can't openly comfort you. So if you're unwilling to mourn, you can't be comforted. But if you're willing to mourn, if you're willing to let it out, if you're willing to admit the pain, if you're willing to communicate the pain, be accountable to the pain, then God says, I will heal you. You can't receive comfort until you admit there's pain on the inside. And that's the reason some of you can never sit quietly. Can I just be honest here? The reason some of you always have to have a device in your hand or Netflix on the TV or or the reason your times with God have to have worship blaring. You can't just go to the Lord with no worship music blaring or you have to have a prayer list that's prodding you. It's because every time you're quiet the Holy Spirit reaches into you and He wants to talk about the thing you've hidden. He wants to talk about the thing you've buried, buried deep down within and you don't want to admit is there. See, I have learned, whether you know it or not, I have learned that the Holy Spirit has never read the book Boundaries. He's never read Townsend and Cloud's book. And he has no boundaries. So when I want to talk about the weather, he wants to talk about what's down and deep. And so I want to talk about surface things. And I get quiet before him and he says, no, Craig, actually, I I would like to talk about that. Can we bring that up together? Let's talk about that today. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He wants to heal it. And I want to warn you, listen, listen to me, hear my heart. When you choose to hide your pain, you hand Satan a weapon to use against you. You you, you take a weapon and you give it to the enemy of your soul. Because there is no sorrow that God cannot heal and there is no pain that He cannot mend and there is no hurt that He cannot bring joy out of, but you have to admit it's there. you got to say it's there. So that's the first thing Hannah did. Here's the second thing Hannah did. you got to get in God's presence and give Him the pain you got to get in God's presence and give Him the pain. Roll over the pain to Him. The reason we hold on to pain... Can I meddle here just a minute? I think this will help you. I really do. The reason we hold on to pain, at least I know in my... is because the enemy has told us that if we ever give it up, it lets that person off the hook, or it's like it never really happened, right? So the enemy tries to convince us that we unconsciously wear pain like it's a merit badge. We wear pain like it's something we have done. It's proof we went through some Pain is personal, church. Pain is not impersonal. Pain is personal. Pain is not something you want to go through and forget. No, you want to carry it and show people that you've been through something. You can't forget it. If you give it up and give it and release the pain, then the enemy's going to think and tell you that, that no one will know you ever were misunderstood or no one will ever know how you were really treated so you got to hold on to that pain you got to wear it like a badge if I set this down Pastor Craig they won't know what I really went through they won't know how I was treated by that individual if I don't tell people about my pain it'll be like it didn't happen I prayed heartfelt prayers Pastor Craig I cried tears for years over this situation I've got to hold on to the pain I can't let the pain go if I let the pain go then no one will be able to understand where I've come from listen to me I may not be able 
to understand your pain. But there is one who does understand your pain. There is one who Isaiah 53, this is what the Bible says of him, that he was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering. But this is the phrase that gets me. He was familiar with pain. Jesus was familiar with pain. He was familiar. Now I know a lot of you, you, you know that you're familiar that Jesus knows about physical pain. But you need to know that Jesus is familiar with every pain. He, Jesus is familiar with the pain of poverty and not having enough as a child. Jesus is familiar with the pain of losing friends that he wanted to keep. Jesus is familiar with the pain of authority figures pushing him down when you know you're supposed to rise up. Jesus is familiar with the pain of pouring yourself into people with no reciprocity and nobody giving back into your heart. Jesus is familiar with the pain of loneliness. Jesus is familiar with the pain of bitterness. He's familiar with the pain of envy. He's familiar with the pain of someone kissing you on the cheek and yet stabbing you in the back. He is familiar with the pain of loss. He's familiar with the pain of grief. He's familiar with the pain of racism. He's familiar with the pain of prejudice. He is familiar with all pain, including your pain. Including your pain. And you know why? Because the Bible says he was there for every moment of it. And he collected every tear from your face. And because he knows your pain, he can take your pain. And because he knows your pain and is well acquainted with your pain, he can transform your pain. I'll never forget. I was sitting in my office one day as a college pastor. And a young lady came into my office. And she wanted to have a meeting. And I never imagined it would come into and evolve into a year and a half process. But she sat down and she began to share parts of her story that were absolutely tragic. Tragic. She told me about her parents and how her real parents had abused her sexually since she was earliest memories, two or three. And when she tried to fight against her parents, her parents would say, this is what's godly to submit to your authority so that she would allow then the parents to continue. Then she told me the story of when she was eight years old and she was driving down the road with all five siblings and Two of the younger ones, younger than eight, in the back seat were already performing oral sex on one another because they had seen it done in their household so much. She then told me the pain about how when she, her mother had a miscarriage and the mother took the fetus and put it in a gallon Ziploc bag and put it in the freezer. So every time they would go and eat dinner, this family would know, man, this is what's happened to mom. She told me the pain about when she fell in her backyard and broke her wrist, but they never took them to the doctor one time in their life until they were finally rescued in late teenage year. This happened in Georgia. And the arm grew back deformed. She told me the story about her older brother who was driving with her younger brother the day after Thanksgiving. He crossed over, looking down at his phone, he crossed over and hit a SUV and it decapitated the 19-year-old. And his 8-year-old brother watched the whole thing. Now she's telling me all these things and I'm listening to them and any one of those is huge and I'm thinking, how would you survive that? How would you continue on? But what blew my mind is this. She told me that all of those things happened within 24 months. Now something didn't compute in my head, y'all. Because this is a girl who is happy. And she came into church. She wouldn't wait for the meet and greet. She'd hug you. She'd tell you she'd love you. She'd invite you over. She'd do lunch with you. She would, she would serve you. She would encourage you. She was a loving person. And I finally couldn't stand it anymore. And I went to court after court appearance with this with the real parents. And then the parents take it over the children and... And I said to her one day, I said, how in the world did you survive that? And she looked at me like I was an idiot. She looked at me like, you're the pastor, aren't you? <laughs> what do you mean how I survived it? And she said, I don't know, Pastor Craig. I just woke up every day and Jesus was there to take me by the hand. And he walked me through every valley. And he walked me through every challenge. And I'm just here to tell you this morning. I know when you woke up this morning, it was scary. It was really scary. I understand. But let me tell you, Jesus Christ met you at your bedside. And he got you up out of your bed. And he took you by the hand. And he got you ready. And he got you and brought you to dwelling place. And he walked you across that parking lot. And he walked you through that lobby. And Jesus took you by the hand and walked you down that aisle. And he set you in that seat. And he's going to sit there next to you in just a few moments. He's going to walk you down to this altar. And you can pour out your grace and pour out your pain and pour out your challenge before him and he won't throw it away no 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 he won't take your pain and throw it away because your pain is too precious to him what he'll do is he'll bottle it all up because he keeps every tear and he'll wear it like a badge of overcoming grace in his life and he will carry it to the cross and then what he'll do is after you've poured out your pain to him he'll take you by the hand he'll walk you right back down the aisle he'll walk you out those double doors and through that into your car and he'll walk you into your house today and let you live in the freedom that he died to set you free from he will give you he will give you grace. He will lead you. 
He will guide you. He will heal you. He won't throw away your pain. No, your pain's too precious. But he wants to carry your pain to the cross. He wants to continue to carry. Allow your prayer to be the place where burden shifts shoulders. Where it leaves your shoulders and falls on him. Here's the last one. I think it's the one that people need the most if you'll come. Listen, don't miss this one. This is the one that people need the most. You have to let God give your pain a purpose. This is key. You got to let God give your pain a purpose. 1 Samuel one twenty. notice this. this. The Bible says Hannah became pregnant. She gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel. Do you know who Samuel was? He became one of the greatest leaders in all of Israel. In his 50 years of leadership, there was 50 years of righteousness in the land. There was 50 years of expansion in the land. Watch this. Watch what happened. Watch this. Watch this exchange. Hannah gave God her pain. God gave Hannah Samuel. Hannah gave Samuel back to God. Watch, watch. Here's why. Your pain will never be fully healed until it's used to heal someone else. Your pain's never fully. Your pain's never fully, fully healed. Until God takes that pain and uses it to heal others. Your pain is never fully used in God's economy until it's used to heal somebody else, to give freedom to other captives, to bind up the brokenhearted. Can you imagine the pain? Jesus feels of these precious families who've lost their family members last night. Oh, he feels so much pain. And yet what he wants to do is he wants to bind it up and heal it, take it, and turn, 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 turn it to use to liberate others, to strengthen them. I've seen this with my own eyes, y'all. Let me give you one story. This lady fascinates me. I saw her several years ago. Her name is Cheryl Maynard. She got up to share at a camp meeting that I was at. She lives in Jessup, Georgia. With my aunt, what she's going through now, I've wanted badly for my aunt to, to be able to, to attend this place. Cheryl Maynard took, got up one night and she told the story. She started by saying, In 2007, I entered the worst, most painful season of my life. She said, Up to that point, Cheryl had a son named Shane. Shane suffered with a bad drug addiction, terrible drug addiction. And like any parent would, when your kids are suffering from drug addiction, she emptied the bank. She did all that she could to take her energy resources to try to get him into treatment and get the treatment he needed. But no matter the pain, it never took. This is a picture of Cheryl. It never took. And in 2007, she received a call that a parent never wants to receive, and it was from a coroner when she was at home. It said, ma'am, I'm sorry, but your son has OD'd, and he's dead. And Cheryl said from the stage, in that moment, my world stopped spinning. She said, everything that was in color went in black and white. My world would not move. She said, a few days later, I was standing over my son's casket. And I looked at my baby boy's lifeless body. And she said, I wanted to die. I had not one ounce of desire to live. And she said, at that moment, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit spoke into my heart. He said, Cheryl, if you'll let me, I'll make the enemy regret the day he introduced your son to drugs. She said, I had no idea what that meant. What in the world did that mean? She said, but all of a sudden, I felt an indescribable peace. It started at the top of my head, filled my body. And then all of a sudden, she said, I don't know how to describe it other than this overwhelming boldness came from heaven. And I was determined divinely to never let another mom stand over a casket of their dead, lifeless boy or girl. And so she left the funeral and she started picking up the pieces. This is her son, picking up the pieces of her life. She learned about the drug epidemic that was in her town there in Jessup, Georgia. 
She learned about how the drug epidemic was destroying lives. She began to write down year after year dreams of how she could be used to be able to make an impact in her community for drug addiction. And seven years later, y'all, I saw her with my own eyes and I saw about 30 women with her that night that were full. You would never think that they had ever abused ever in their life. And in seven years later, she opened up a Christian drug and rehabilitation center. It's called Shane's Crib. And it is one of my favorite things to look at every day on Facebook as a friend. It's called Shane's Crib in Jessup, Georgia. And as of last month, it has an 85% success rate. And it has helped over 200 women leave addiction and find freedom in Jesus. And you say, Craig, why do you tell that story? I tell you that story because Satan had told this mama, your life is over. You're never to live again. And yet the Holy Spirit spoke at a casket and said, I will make the enemy of your soul regret the day he ever brought drug addiction to your son's doorstep. I'm here to tell you. You say, Craig, I don't know how God can use my pain. Well, you don't know how good your God is. He can take the worst of painful situations and work out of it his plan. He can take your greatest failures where you seem so ashamed and so embittered and God can bring about such witness and such wisdom and such ministry. God can take your greatest misery and He can turn it into your greatest ministry. He can. He can. And and here's what's amazing. In Exodus 30, the Bible gives us the ingredients for the anointing oil. The anointing oil. What is the anointing? It's God's supernatural empowerment on my life to do what He's called me to do. You know what the first ingredient is? Exodus 30 of the anointing always, it's myrrh. Now listen, when you're reading something in Scripture, first is the most important, and the Bible says that the first ingredient of the anointing oil is myrrh, and there's twice as much. Go read it. Twice as much myrrh of any other ingredient in Exodus 30. So you say, what is myrrh? You know what myrrh is? Myrrh is extremely bitter. Bitter is myrrh. They offered it to Jesus when he was dying on the cross, right? And there's two times, it's first, and there's two times the amount of myrrh of any other ingredient. You know what? I think it's God's way of saying that your most painful and bitter seasons will become the most potent ingredients for my anointing on your life. That what is so bitter, what was so bitter going down, what was so bitter in your initial taste, God says, I will use those as the very ingredients my calling and anointing on your life because nobody ministers to divorced people like a divorced person and nobody ministers to a person who's lost a kid like a mama who's lost a kid and nobody ministers to an addict like a person who was once addicted and God says I'll take your greatest misery and turn it into your greatest ministry if you'll let me was that easy for Cheryl? no I can't imagine the pain she still posts never get over the grief she still posts she's my friend Oh, she'll post a new picture. I miss him so much. Or I see his smile and the smile of another young lady that she led to freedom from addiction. Let me tell you, God has redeemed that for his purpose. And he'll do the same in your life. I don't know how God could do it, Pastor Craig. You don't know how good he is. He can take whatever it is. He can take purpose and pull it from the most painful experiences. And he can make hell regret the day that that abuse ever showed up on your doorstep as a teenager. Or he can make the Satan pay and regret forever bringing about that pain to your doorstep as an adolescent or an adult. And he wants to rub it in the face of the enemy. That he can turn it and turn it and turn it and turn it and turn it. And I wish today there would be some boldness that would stir in some of you. Some type of boldness that would stir to say, you know what? It may not. I I won't focus on what's lost. I'm going to focus on what's left. Even when David lost his own son, he went into the temple and he worshipped God. And they said, why aren't you weeping and fasting anymore? He said, what what can I do? He's already dead. You know what he said though? He said, I'm going to focus on what's left and what's not what's lost. And guess what was left? Came Solomon, who was the wisest king in all of Israel. Why? Because God can take the worst of our sin, the worst of our mistakes, and put a turn. He can reverse it with his redemptive purpose. You have a God who can turn it for your good and turn it for his purpose. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. 